Hello and welcome to Built for Earth, where we are spotlighting experts and innovators taking on climate change. My name is Sam Beskin, and today our guest joining the show is world energy and climate expert Cade Gordon. Most recently, she served as senior advisor to the U.S. Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, where she led initiatives to help drive a more sustainable and inclusive energy transition. Prior to her time in Washington, she served as senior climate policy advisor to Governor Gavin Newsom and helped develop some of the most forward-looking policies at the state level. She's now a visiting scholar at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business and is writing a book about place-based policy and investment approaches to the U.S. energy transition. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thanks so much, Sam. It's great to be here. Well, I am so excited to have you on, and I think your expertise will be so valuable for listeners. And the place I want to start is, unlike most people who are working in climate who come from an environmental background, you began your professional career in law with a focus on economic equity and city planning. So how does this affect how you view addressing climate problems? Thanks for that question. Yeah, it's funny how that I think that background is becoming a little less unusual. It's exciting to see more people coming from interdisciplinary backgrounds into the climate space. But when I started in energy and climate, you really mostly met environmental engineers, earth sciences people, climate activists. So yeah, I was a little unusual. I think it's been really important for me to have the kind of regional economic development background. And I also have an organizing background. Before I went to law school, I was trained as an organizer because it really gets you to think kind of immediately about just the very local nature of climate solutions and climate impacts. This is a, a inherently global issue, of course, and a lot of the key solutions are at that global negotiations table, like at the UN. But the reality is that climate and energy decisions are really felt locally, um, whether it's because you're in a place that is particularly at risk from you know, extreme heat or wildfires or sea level rise and have to think about resilience on a kind of an immediate basis, or because you're in a community where your entire tax base and many of your jobs come from a fossil fuel industry and you're grappling with what it looks like to lose that and to think about something different. Or if you're in a community that's just been left out of the whole economic development conversation in general, like a lot of our um, disadvantaged communities, it's a very, very local issue fundamentally. And climate change is central to the whole economy. So it matters everywhere. And I spend a lot of time thinking about what how that looks different in different places. That's such great context to start this conversation, because I think a lot of times people lose the local picture when they're thinking about climate change. We talk about saving the world and 1.5 degrees Celsius and whatnot. But this is a real problem affecting real people. And it looks different for different people. Like you said, you might be in a coal-based fossil fuel community. Or on the other hand, you might be experiencing extreme weather events. And so the fact that you've been able to be at the federal policy level and then still recognize this is a very local issue is really awesome. So to that point, in your work, you've continually put an emphasis on place-based initiatives rather than technology-based initiatives. But why do you believe that this is the correct lever for change? And maybe taking a step back, what what does that mean? And what does a place-based initiative look like? And I know we need the gamut. We need technology as well. But why have you emphasized this in your work? Yeah, I mean, place-based is is an economic development term of art. It's getting a lot more use lately, which is great. But really, all it means is 
taking action that's very directly relevant to the place you're taking it. So in the economic development context, that means doing things like asset mapping, which is sort of looking at the existing assets of a place. What is the geology? What's the infrastructure? What's the existing workforce? What are the existing trade, you know, trade access or transportation access? That matters a lot in economic development because it's very hard to know how to invest in a place and think about industrial development or location decisions without knowing all of that. My feeling is that that's just as true for sort of the energy transition. As we're thinking about what makes the most sense in terms of a, a transition, that really depends on the place, right? You need to know about, are there solar resources? Are there wind resources? Is there transmission interconnection to a grid? Do you have the geology necessary for long duration carbon removal? Do you have uh, the transportation networks necessary for building out clean manufacturing supply chains? I mean, these are economic development questions. And then there's a whole layer on top of that is sort of what does the workforce look like? What's the community look like? And some of the place-based work uh, that's been done recently and that I've done at the Department of Energy and in California is really about sort of that community engagement piece. So what is the culture of the community? What is the history of the community? Sometimes you will have the perfect location for a project from sort of all of the quantitative perspectives, but you know that community's had a really bad history with industrial development, and it's just not an ideal location for a lot of reasons that aren't just about the kind of physical attributes. So that's really what place-based development means. And, and I think it's increasingly important in the energy space, partly because frankly, siting and permitting are so important to developers. And my feeling has always been, it's easier to do and more productive to do siting and permitting and location de de decisions in the context of like these kinds of questions. I don't think it's in contrast to technology. Technology is really important because the other side of the coin is, you also have to have the right technology at the right price point to be commercializable. If you're putting a technology in a place and you're basing it entirely on what the community wants, plus a bunch of government subsidy, you are not serving the community or the clean energy agenda if that fails after the subsidy is gone. If you don't have a good path to commercialization, it's, it's not serving anybody. No community wants to see yet another manufacturing firm die and be left yet again in a position of not having jobs, you know, even if that's a clean energy manufacturer, it's all the same issues. So you, you do need to actually have a kind of a marriage of the technology approach and the place-based approach. That's really helpful. And I think your point that you have to really look at the assets a community has is so critical because that's something that I've seen in the past couple of years really co come into fruition is like even with the new hydrogen energy hubs, yeah. each different area will have a, a, re a relevant purpose and it's the country is broken up accordingly. Like you said, maybe the Texas Permian Basin has great wind resources, whereas the Southwest has better solar resources. And so I, I really love that point. And then integrating that with the work you're doing on on educating communities and, and understanding what's the history culturally, I think is awesome. And the, the last point is these technologies are not only supposed to help the planet, but help the people in the communities. And so if we can build a great DAC plant, help, hopefully it can help 
elevate the economic workforce in that area, bring better jobs and more commercialization to that area as well. Well, and it's a feedback loop, Sam. I mean, the only way that we have sustained action toward the energy transition is if people feel like they're part of it. So I think it's a feedback loop in that the more successful a project in a particular place and the more diverse those projects, frankly, like there's projects that work really well in rural areas, there's projects that work really well in urban areas. The more successful those projects, the more people feel like they are seeing actual benefits, the more likely they will support the next round of clean energy policy, right? So it's all very related to the larger agenda of just doing what is frankly like the biggest economic transition we have ever done since the beginning of the industrial revolution it is going to be an all hands on deck project <laughs> and so i you know i think that's really really important for people to feel like it's they're not on the sidelines absolutely and to that point about positive feedback loops you've been on the the leading edge of the energy transition first in california and then nationally and so Prior to your work at the DOE, you were the Director of Office of Planning and Research as well as Senior Policy Advisor to Governor Newsom in California, which is not even arguably, it it really is the most forward-looking climate state in the country. And so would you be able to talk a little bit about the initiatives you helped start and then how different states can learn from what you've been able to do at California, either with the Community Economic Resilience Fund or the Climate Catalyst Fund, and how other states can learn from what you have done to help address the climate crisis on a, on a state and more local level than nationally. Yeah, thanks for that. California is such a huge state, and you don't even really realize that till you work for the state. I mean, it's the fourth largest economy in the world, and it's just huge geographically and very diverse. So it's interesting because when you're outside California, a lot of people will sort of scoff at the idea that California is relevant to other parts of the country. And, and I understand that. I think there can be a little bit of California exceptionalism that is sort of frustrating to people. But it actually is a very diverse state. You know, it's got a lot of rural areas. It's got obviously an oil and gas industry. It's got an agricultural industry. It's got these big urban areas and lots of climate pockets throughout the state. So pretty amazing place to get to do work. I should just educate folks because most people don't even in the state don't know what the Office of Planning and Research is. It is a long range planning office that sits within the governor's office and really a great place for me. I I like this sort of intersectional thinking, and I got to work on housing and transportation and climate and climate resilience in terms of long-range planning in that office and kind of going into economic development. So, and lots of dot connecting across agencies. It was a really fun uh, job. The couple of things I really tried to do in my time in the governor's office, California is absolutely a leader on climate particularly in terms of goal setting, like the electric vehicle sales by 2035 was, I was there for that executive order. And in terms of setting the frameworks like the California Air Resources Board and the state cap and trade program. That is definitely incredible leadership. A lot of other countries and states have followed it. Where I saw a gap was actually in implementation. Um, I think Goal setting is really important to move the needle, but it isn't writing a policy is not the end of the project. And so I tried to do things or do interventions where I saw there was just a gap in how that was translating down. So one of the big ones that I worked on 
you, you mentioned these two, but they're very different from each other. So I'll talk about both of them. The Climate Catalyst Fund is essentially California's green bank. And what we realized was that we didn't actually have a clear green bank. There's an infrastructure bank in California, the iBank, but it didn't have sort of a clear purpose around sustainability and resilience. And looking at the landscape, looking at the Biden administration coming in and the landscape, we were thinking, look, if Congress passes something at the federal level on, on green finance, we need to have a receptacle for that. Like if there's some kind of formula funding to the states or there's some kind of partnership with the states, we didn't have a clear way to participate in that. And that was sort of surprising because California is this leader. But, you know, Connecticut had a green bank. I mean, New York had a great, all these other people had green banks. So we created the Catalyst Fund to have a place within the iBank where we could take any funding coming federally or from the state or from wherever that was sort of focused toward financing for sustainability and resilience projects and do it in a way that was very Californian with a focus on low-income communities, with a focus on uh, strong workforce standards, et cetera. So the Catalyst Fund was created for that. And, you know, it's a good policy lesson. When we first created it, it had no funding in it at all. We created it as a vehicle that was unfunded. It was at a time of us, like now, of a state budget deficit in 2019. And it still became very useful to have that as a mechanism. And now it's an operational thing. And so that's kind of a good lesson for anyone doing policy. You sometimes have to do these tactical moves a few steps ahead to get to an outcome. And then the Community Economic Resilience Fund is now called the California Jobs First Initiative. That was something we realized that California did not have a great connection between the climate goals and our economic development goals in the state. And that's really important, especially as you're thinking about energy transition. You're really talking about industrial growth and, you know, economic growth and workforce development and sort of all of these very specific things. And that connection just wasn't that strong. And that's particularly key in a place where you're seeing transition out of oil and gas and a question about what what happens after that or out of big commodity agriculture in some of the drier parts of the state. So they, the SURF, for California Economic Resilience Fund, we created to basically fund every one of 13 regions across California in planning for a more sustainable economic future coming out of COVID um, and then to do implementation of the projects that the community came up with. So very bottom up but with this structure of state funding at the top. And I'm super proud of that. I'm excited about it. And, you know, full disclosure, continue to work on that now as a consultant at the regional level, particularly in the Central Valley. Thank you so much for that overview. And I think like that was a lot of meat packed into one question. Sorry, long, long answer. <laughs> no, 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 no. You did a phenomenal job unpacking multiple policies and like years worth of work in, in a couple minutes there. But yes, we have all these climate goals and frameworks for how we're going to advance meaningful climate action, even not just on the policy side, but, you know, corporations have these huge offsetting carbon neutral goals by 2030, 2040, whatever it may be. And really the the gap is in terms of implementation and interventions and how you actually make that come to life and that might be a good segue to ask you a little bit more about nationally and even in private markets as well we have historic funding surrounding climate 
But what does it take to translate this into action? We have billions of dollars on the table with the Inflation Reduction Act. But in your experience, what are the most effective ways to translate that into meaningful climate progress, meaningful infrastructure development, and even economic development, as you alluded to in your previous answer? Uh, it is it is definitely a historic moment. I, I cannot say that enough. This is an incredible, not just Inflation Reduction Act, but the collection of bills. Really, I think you have to look at, frankly, all four. The American Rescue Plan, which included historic levels of economic development support for communities. And then the infrastructure bill, really a significant investment in this sort of both foundational infrastructure like EV charging, like transmission, like the infrastructure that's required for us to have a clean energy economy, and also in demonstration projects like the hydrogen hubs, which you talked about, the direct air capture hubs, et cetera. Then you get the Chips and Science Bill, historic investment in our labs and in semiconductors in particular, which are an input to a lot of pieces of the clean energy economy. And then the Inflation Reduction Act with all the tax credits. Just kind of incredible to even think about that package of bills. Well, congrats to you. <laughs> you were a huge part of making this happen. So, well, I mean, thank it, you. It is amazing. I mean, I, I was definitely a little involved on the on the legislative side, much more involved on the um, implementation side. But to your point, this is a huge amount of money and a, and a lot of very different pieces. I mean, the infrastructure bill alone, for instance, had 72 separate programs at the Department of Energy that were funded. 60 of them were new to the department. We had to literally reorganize the department to be able to manage that because the department's historically been, for anyone who's seen Oppenheimer, like it, that's the history of the department. It was the Atomic Energy Agency and then became a research and science agency primarily. We had to really redesign it to be a deployment agency. And that takes a lot of work and a lot of people and a lot of expertise. And then Inflation Reduction Act is is complex to implement because it's a tax bill. So you have these layers, you have the treasury, which is consulting with expert agencies like the Department of Energy and Transportation and others to build out rules that then are funneled through the IRS for implementation. And that is a complex system. Right there, the IRS is an independent agency of treasury. So it's a lot of different people working together. I'll say two things, two key points about that. One is, this does not work without the civil service. It does not work. The civil service is our entire bench of long-term experts at the agencies who have been there for years, have outlived political change, and who know what has worked and what hasn't worked in the past. They are deep experts. They do all the implementation. They help interpret what Congress says. They help figure out how it fits into the existing structure. They help figure out whether it works or doesn't work with communities. Hugely, hugely important. So just shout out to the civil service here. They, they get a bad rap, but they're incredible um, public servants. The second thing is the way that Congress does these bills is very top down. It's very high level. So you really actually need to do the work to translate it into something that provides real benefits to communities and workers. It's way up there and like theoretically provides benefits, right? So the Inflation Reduction Act has really, and so does the infrastructure bill, really good language on like prevailing wage and 
worker benefits and targeted support to energy communities in transition and targeted support to low-income communities. How that actually plays out on the ground requires this sort of implementation through the agencies, but also just real direct attention paid to kind of that interaction with communities. Because it's pretty easy for it to be, to not work at the community level. One of the big things I did at Department of Energy, which we can talk more about, was help to develop this community benefits plan structure where we actually sort of did the work within the implementation process and procurement to embed community-facing and worker-facing pieces into implementation just to make sure that what Congress's intent was would actually play out on the ground. And I think that's that's just a very tactical thing, but I'm happy to talk more about it. Yeah, and th- that might be a perfect segue to to talk about one of the key things you did at the DOE. And I, I, I do want to take a moment to just talk about like the massive undertaking that many people don't even recognize that I, I didn't even recognize until this episode that the DOE had to completely reorganize to make these historic bills happen. Yeah. But that is just incredible that you guys were able to do that in a time span where we're now into the near implementation stage of a lot of these bills. And so maybe, yeah, please do share about how that. Well, and just thanks. Thanks to the secretary, honestly. I mean, having a secretary who had been a governor and I've known her since she was governor of Michigan and I've been super fortunate to work with her a long time, but folks probably don't know that when she was governor of Michigan, she actually did something similar. This was during, of course, the right around the recession and then the ARA, the American Rescue Recovery Act. And that was our first investment federally into sort of electric vehicle manufacturing, for instance, through the Clean Vehicle Manufacturing Program, which she was very involved in helping to stand up. She reorganized her own departments in the in the government of Michigan, and she combined her energy and her labor departments so that she could have this really kind of laser focus on job creation in the energy transition from traditional vehicles to electric vehicles. I just, so I think her experience having done that and then her just executive function, she has a very high level of executive function, uh, was was instrumental to making it happen. Not every secretary could do that. So I, I think she really deserves the credit for being able to do it. Well, and that's amazing on Secretary Granholm. And I see this needle kind of weaving through between your first answer, which you talked about really this doesn't happen without the civil service and you need a long-term bench of experts and people who have experience guiding these decisions. And then second with, with the secretary, again, it falls back on that experience and building a framework at the state level that can totally. then be expanded nationally to be successful. And so I think that speaks to the importance of having people who are really knowledgeable and experienced leading these agencies and our government in general. I do want to get back to that previous question about what does that real direct attention to communities look like now that we have these historic bills in place? You were the primary catalyst behind building a community benefits plan and integrating communities into the implementation of these bills. And so please do share a little bit about that. Thanks. I mean, the the it's very generous to say primary driver. I I definitely worked with some amazing people. First of all, the secretary made clear when the infrastructure bill passed, she made clear that it was very important to her and for us in the department to make sure that the benefits of these dollars would actually be felt 
in communities and by workers. So that was a real goal of, the, of course, the Biden administration as a whole and, and her in particular. So taking that at a high level and thinking about how do you translate that into action? I worked really closely with Shalonda Baker, who's the head of what was then called the Office of Impact and Diversity, Economic Impact and Diversity within DOE, and Bethany Jones, who's the head of the Office of Energy Jobs as an agency to come up with a framework that would you know, try to make sure that these public dollars going out the door would create public benefits, right? That should be the that should just be the bottom line deal with public money. So what we did was we looked at our leverage, which was very narrow. Uh, the money to DOE from the infrastructure bill was almost entirely either formula funding to states and local governments and tribes, which DOE has very little kind of ability to change that. It kind of is a pass through or these like competitive grants and loans to the private sector. And that's important because DOE primarily funds companies and private sector entities, does not have a lot of funding for communities, um, for nonprofits, you know, very different from like an EPA or a USDA. They have much more community facing funding. DOE's funding tends to be private sector. So we sort of said, given that our money is going to the private sector, what's our leverage to create community benefits? So we created this process within the procurement process, um, so which is a point scoring process, right? So if you're applying under an RFP for DOE money, you get a certain number of points for your application, and that's how they're scored against each other. Um, we created a uh, process through which community benefits plans, which I'll talk about in a second, they have four parts, but community benefits plans are 20% of the application for the competitive funding under the infrastructure bill. That's a big deal. 20% is a big deal. And the way we structured it is that piece of the application is scored based on four factors. One is the level of community and worker engagement. Do you know anything about the place that you're proposing this project? That goes back to my like asset mapping point. What are the characteristics of the place? What's the culture of the place? Who are the stakeholders of the place? Number two is how are you creating real benefits to workers? So that's really about job quality access to jobs, pipeline of workforce pipeline, et cetera, apprenticeships, free apprenticeships. The third was how are you ensuring benefits to disadvantaged communities? So that requires knowing where they are and what the what the history of the community is, but also thinking about direct benefits in those communities. And then the and through things like, you know, higher local higher requirements, you know, direct support, et cetera. And then the fourth piece was diversity, equity, inclusion. So really, how do you make sure that you're diversifying the pipeline of contractors and employees on the project? That's really important in energy. Energy is an incredibly uh, male and white field in general. He has a lot of research on this. And so it's it's really important. So those four factors together, they overlap a lot, but those together are the 20%. And then that becomes sort of competitive. And the cool thing about that is it's led to some really interesting, it's interesting for me now being on the outside of DOE. I now am seeing what the, like, I see what this has led to. I got a, a email today, like a mass email from Carbon 180, which is a nonprofit that does carbon removal. I used to be on their board. They sent out some big announcement email about the direct air capture hubs. And they were like, and the community benefits plans with a, with a link. You know, people are talking about this. It's kind of creating a consultant class, which is I think great. A lot of communities are kind of involved and in trying to figure out how to participate. Philanthropy is involved. So that's exciting for me to see from the outside. It has really changed, I think, the way a lot of companies think about these projects, uh, which was our goal. It is not perfect, 
but it is, I think, a very effective mechanism given the limitations of our authority. <laughs> and the cool thing is it's also now being used in the loan program office for the loans, which is like exponentially more dollars. So it's very cool. That's amazing. And the the fact that you're tying funding in the planning stages to these community, it's not a second thought. It, it, to, to get the dollars right. to build a DAC hub or build any sort of infrastructure project with public dollars, you're going to need those public benefits around creating real benefits for workers, ensuring benefits are for disadvantaged communities, ensuring that you really know what the characters are of the place you're building in. That's amazing. And uh, to your point, it is common term vernacular in the energy world. People are talking about the community benefits plan and how they're addressing this. And so props to you for making that happen. I know it's in the early stages. Are there any examples that you want to talk about where you've seen this start to play out a little bit um, tangibly? Yeah, it's a, it is, I mean, one of the hard things I think about this money is that these are really good and hard. These are really big projects. Mm -hmm. Building on a manufacturing sector for batteries is a really big endeavor, right? <laughs> building a hydrogen hub, building a, a direct air capture hub, they take years. So we haven't seen any of them play out that much yet. There's been a lot of sort of preparation and engagement that we've seen. I will say that the first set of grants that went out the door that had this were the battery manufacturing grants and under the infrastructure bill. And those grants, that's a really important program. It's it's sort of an interesting through line of industrial policy that the president did an executive order on supply chains where he said, we have to focus on battery supply because we can't be subject to other countries, particularly other countries where we have complicated relationships geopolitically for our batteries. So there was a real emphasis he put on batteries. And then the infrastructure bill put a lot of funding into batteries, I think $7 billion to DOE to build out battery manufacturing. And then we did the initial, what we called a DOE FOA, Founding Opportunity Announcement. A lot of people call them RFPs. We put one out on that. We included the what was then called the equity plan requirement. It changed its name. And I can tell you that of the, I think, 21 initial awardees for that, out of hundreds, by the way, uh, we saw some really amazing commitments. Like we saw commitments, you know, not only to community engagement, to but to actual negotiated enforceable community benefits agreements or good neighbor agreements or project labor agreements. That's the gold standard for community benefits is if you have an actual negotiated enforceable agreement with the community or with the workforce because that then becomes like a an additional level of accountability. It's really important. So I think seven of them committed to enforceable agreements. We saw a number of them hiring community engagement specialists for the first time. They were like having people move to the place and live there and like really be engaged with the community. Project labor agreements on a number of them. A couple of them where there were tribal engagement. This is really important. You see this a lot in energy particularly as we're starting to think about, you know, critical mineral mining and also sort of big renewable projects that require a lot of land. Tribal governments often are involved with that. A lot of our critical minerals are on or near tribal lands. That's another level of engagement because tribes are sovereign nations. So that's almost like a diplomacy relationship. And we started seeing some really, really good, you know, even opening the door to like equity sharing in the project. So I think it's, it's exciting to see what's possible. It's sort of, to me, 
can we figure out not only a new kind of energy economy, but a new way of doing business in the energy economy is super important. And if this kind of cracks that door open a little, then I feel really good about that. Absolutely. And I think it gets back to your point, Kate, that if you involve workers and and communities, there's going to be a positive feedback loop. And so seeing these negotiated contracts with equity sharing, like that is so wicked cool. And the fact that if those projects are successful in not only their energy or carbon reduction initiatives, but in lifting up the community as well, then other communities are going to want to be a part of this. And then it no longer becomes a roadblock for companies or something that they have to think about. It's it's the communities who might be pulling, instead of pushing this onto them, they're going to be pulling this and being like, oh, build, build your DAC hub here or whatever it may be. Yeah. And so I think this is just the beginning of a really promising path forward for the energy transition. I hope so. I will say one of the other things that I really like about the way the these bills are structured and also the way DOE is implementing is there's also a real focus on on something on repurposing existing infrastructure. So I think that's really important. I mean, we aren't starting with a blank page here. We're starting with an existing industrial economy. It's very built out in the US. We have a lot of stuff already. We have a lot of roads. We have a lot of plants. We have a lot of line transmission lines. We have a lot of industrial stuff. If we can figure out creative ways to repurpose or reuse that instead of like building more sprawl or greenfield development, it's really important, not only because it's more efficient, and a better land use approach, but it's also better for communities. I mean, it's better not to build a bunch of new industrial communities if you can help it. If you can take a coal plant that's been closed, that has all these incredible assets, right? It's already interconnected to the grid. It already has, you know, a boiler. It already has industrial land permits. It already has water rights. If you can take that and repurpose it into something else in service of this new economy, that's just so much more productive than starting something new and then having that plant just sit there in the middle of its its community. Absolutely. And that reminds me of one of my favorite episodes on this podcast. There's a company, Renewal, who's taking yeah. abandoned oil wells. My, my former Stanford student yes, started Temp that Gregor. company. <laughs> That's awesome. He's He's been one of my favorites. But it, they're taking abandoned oil wells and transitioning them into gravity-based energy storage. And I think we have to be creative with our approaches. And to your point, where do you see the biggest opportunities to do this sort of refurbishment or repurposing of existing assets? And yeah. where do you think there isn't the existing infrastructure in place? Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity. I mean, coal plants are a great example, and I just talked about why, but they're, you can't under like state the value of you can't overstate, sorry, the value of an interconnection to the grid. I mean, interconnection is like the biggest barrier to everybody right now. It takes a very long time for a lot of reasons. And having that existing interconnect is huge. So that is is really valuable. You can do a lot with coal plants. There's a existing examples of coal to solar and solar and storage. You can do coal to data center. I've seen that. A lot of people are talking about coal to small modular reactor, which is really interesting and employs a similar number of people or more, which is kind of amazing. Oh, wow. The Terra Power plant proposed in Kemmerer, Wyoming, is a coal to SMR plant. Yeah, you can do coal to manufacturing. There's just a lot you can do with coal plants. So right. I think that's cool. 
I am really into, it's very geeky thing to be into, but I, as a secretary, share a love of reconductoring on transmission lines. So Interesting. instead of building out entire new lines to deal with the increased demand and capacity we need, and just to upgrade, we're dealing with like 100-year-old lines in a lot of places. You actually just take them section by section and you re- what's called reconductor them. You build out, you sort of put a new line over an existing line and it, and, and much higher capacity. That's very cool. There was just a paper out from UC Berkeley on that. That's interesting. There's a lot of talk about other parts. I, I love the renewal example. We actually highlighted them in a webinar we did with the interagency work group on coal and power plant communities, which is sort of the administration's energy transition, White House driven thing. We highlighted renewal among others on that. So there's a lot of good examples of things you can do. Obviously, rail is an energy infrastructure to a great extent. Pipelines are a open question, I would argue, whether they can be repurposed. <laughs> but, you know, interesting examples. I think there are places where it's harder to do that for a variety of reasons. Oh, and I should have said mines. Like there's actually interesting DOE research on taking like coal ash and reprocessing it and finding critical minerals in coal ash. Like there's very cool things happening with mines. Um, You can't always do it. It is not always true that the place where these things are works for a new industry. One of the big challenges with this transition in general is we're transitioning from an extractive industry economy where a lot of those industrial facilities are where the extraction was. They're where they are because that was where there was a coal seam, right? Or an oil, you know, a pocket. Those are not always the best places to build out like manufacturing that relies on some level of agglomeration effects. Like you need some amount of like other industry around you and transportation networks and so you, you do have to make those calculations. It's not always possible. I think it's more possible than people think. But I, but I do think that, you know, we have to be honest about where that kind of approach, you know, again, won't serve the community well, because you might end up like putting something somewhere that then won't be able to survive or be commercialized. And that's just a disservice to everybody. So... Well, such an interesting concept. I'm definitely going to start doing some research on reconductoring because that's oh, something I haven't been familiar cool. with, but I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'm excited about that. Um, just a couple last questions for you, Kate. Yeah. One is zooming out. As we look at the energy transition and the recent federal incentives, where do you feel like are the, the biggest opportunities for private sector innovation and opportunity creation and where do you feel like there has been an underinvestment in opportunities in climate or energy more generally? Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I used to always say an answer to this question, carbon removal, right? And now there's all this investment in carbon removal. So I can't say that anymore. Um, so that's good. I do think that's really important. I've done a lot of work in my career on uh, on the place-based aspect of climate impacts, like the existing emissions in the atmosphere, we have got to deal with the existing emissions in the atmosphere along with reducing emissions. It's it's critical. So carbon removal is really important. I, I guess I would say on carbon removal, this is not a technology answer, it's a policy answer, but we need to have a consistent market for removed carbon that it, it we can't rely on voluntary markets forever. It's just not a long-term strategy. So I would love to see more work on the policy side and with industry on figuring out, you know, the standards, the criteria, the like evaluation metrics, 
AI, I feel like could be really useful for this. Like surely we can figure out ways to measure the carbon removal potential of a certain kind of soil, a certain kind of forest, right? Along with the technology interventions like direct air capture. That's really important. So let me just continue to put a pin on that. You know, energy efficiency always gets short shrift, always 100% of the time because it's not as exciting. But I don't see us being able to manage the incredible increase in electricity demand that we're seeing through electrification, through EV transition, through just frankly, like Xbox users and bigger uses of, of technology, as well as we're going to see a lot more air conditioning coming online as, as parts of this country and the world heat up. So that's a big, big, big demand increase. We're already dealing with 100 plus year old transmission lines. We already have a challenge with the demand. I don't see us being able to solve this problem without serious investment in demand response. Um, and I just want to see more of that. Uh, let's be more serious about the grid, about innovation on the grid and innovation and demand response. I'm starting to see some cool companies crop up, but I just think it's an underinvested area uh, and critically important for us to maintain anything like our current standard of electricity use at our current rates. I mean, we got to deal with this. <laughs> and I think this has been a common theme throughout this this chat, Kate, is like, we need to get smarter about our existing resources. And so whether that's becoming more energy efficient or getting smarter with building virtual power plants that can... Yes, exactly. Those are cool too. I should have said VPP. <laughs> well, and, and plastic too is the other thing I usually say. Like, we're going to there is no reduction in the the extraction of fossil fuels if we don't also deal with plastic. Right, 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 right. So because <laughs> that's where you see a lot of these oil oil companies pivoting to is plastics. hundred percent. And it makes total sense. There's a massive demand for it. So let's figure out how to address that demand along with addressing transportation fuel demand. Absolutely. Well, this opens a lot of questions for listeners, and I think your expertise shines through. Like, there's still so much to be done. And so I think this is a great conversation. Last question for you, Kate. What is a fun fact not about Kate, former senior advisor to the Secretary of Energy or world energy expert, but about Kate the person? I don't know how fun it is, but I a thing about me for sure is I, I, I love hiking. It's the, the way I get out of this reality. When you work on climate change and energy, every single day you read any news, everything feels like something you have to solve. And that can be really overwhelming. And so I, I love to go hiking. I'm really fortunate to live in Berkeley. We have amazing regional park system, but I also like go up to Point Reyes whenever I can. I go hiking anywhere I travel. I'm a big All Trails fan, favorite app. And I just finished reading the book 4,000 Weeks, which really I really recommend. And one of the things it talks about is do something in your life that doesn't have a purpose, like that just is. And for me, hiking is that. I love that. Well, I'm a big hiker myself, probably not quite as big as you. In, in that region, you said Point Reyes. Are there any other favorites you have? Well, we're, my mother was from Montreal, and so I'm half Canadian. I guess that's another fun fact about me. And my family has a cottage up on a really beautiful lake in eastern Quebec, which is like about as far away from where I live as you can get, but we go every summer. And there's some amazing hikes near there too. Mount Orford, which is very near there, has some unbelievable kind of beautiful hikes. You can see the whole lake district of eastern Quebec. 
from up there. They are not easy. I mean, technically difficult rock to rock jumping hikes, but really, really beautiful. Well, I'll have to add that to my bucket list and I'll also have to look for the thing that doesn't have a purpose. And I think that's that's important for me. We can all get so caught up in everything you do has to have a purpose. But I think, you know, we're here. We, we need to enjoy our lives, enjoy the moments we're in and enjoy the world we live in. And so, so great to hear that. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Sam. Great questions. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, that concludes today's episode. I first want to say thank you to you, Kate, for sharing your energy policy and climate expertise and your amazing experiences across the state and federal levels. If you like this episode of Built for Earth, please subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social media at Built Number 4 Earth to stay up to date on innovators and experts taking on climate change. Until next time, this is Kate Gordon and Sam Beskin signing off. Thank you. Thank you.